Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Pastor Rob Ginter and Farmdale Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at farmdalebaptist.com. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 is where we'll be this morning. It's been many, many years ago, and my wife just learned about it today, but I was once a part of the largest mosquito attack in the state of Florida that they have ever seen. Kind of, but not all the way. You see, back in those days, we went on school trips to places like Disney and NASA. I don't know how my parents no wonder we were drinking Big K instead of Pepsi because we went to places like NASA and Disney <laughs> for school trips. But as we went to this tropic, tropical rainforest exhibit, we were walking through in a single file line on this really long rope bridge. Us, a bunch of fourth graders. And the first kid in line smacked his leg and screamed out, mosquitoes! And then the Basically, the next kid, you can imagine what they did. They started smacking their legs and screaming, ouch, just like everybody else. And when it got back to me, I mean, I didn't want to be the only one, you know? So I was just like, ow, that, that, they're all over me, you know? Like, just like everybody else. And then before you knew it, that there's 24 fourth graders on a rope bridge beating the fire out of their legs. All of us. Now, could that have been the largest mosquito attack that the state of Florida has ever seen? Could it have been? Probably wasn't. Was there a mosquito there? Who knows? I mean, who really knows anyway about this kind of stuff? I mean, with kids, who really knows if there was one mosquito in that entire place, you know? But what was happening, at least for me and probably everybody else, just somebody like me that was caught up in the activity of a group. You know, like, I didn't want to be the only one not smacking my leg. I didn't want to be the only one the mosquito didn't have anything to do with. But like, what's wrong with that kid? The mosquito won't even touch him. You know, like, I didn't want to be the only kid that wouldn't get bit by a mosquito. You wouldn't want to be either. And that's silly that I was just this chubby fourth grader in line getting caught up in the activities of this group. But that silliness right there doesn't need to have anything to do with God's people. You see, we can't be individuals caught up in the activity of a group. We just can't just be caught up in it. Like, oh, you're, you're doing these holy things. Well, I don't want to stand out over here. So, I mean, like, they put something in the plate. And I mean, I don't want to be the only person who didn't put something in the plate. Be like, what's wrong with him? I mean, they went to Frisch's after church and I didn't want to be the only person that didn't go to Frisch's after church. They had prayer requests. I want a prayer request. They, they said they shared the gospel with somebody. I, I kind of want to say the same thing for me too, right? I don't want to be left out. But if there's anything that we learn in the book of Acts so far that we will see today, hopefully, if God allows so clearly, is that we can't be individuals who are heartlessly and carelessly caught up in the activities of a group of people. We just can't be. That just can't happen. Now, there's such a high standard here in the book of Acts. They trusted in Jesus. They're selling possessions and taking care of one another. And the issue in this passage is that we just can't be close to that and not really a part of that. See, here's the bedrock of this passage is that the belief in the Lord Jesus produces unity. Belief in the Lord Jesus produces unity. You see that in your little bulletin that Benita so skillfully puts together for us. Now, I say that because of verse 32. 
Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So this is Luke as a narrator who breaks in and says that this group of people believed and that united them not only with the Lord that they believed in, but that united them together. And he uses a couple of words to describe that, heart and soul. So what he does is he says, this is what characterizes this group of people. This is a good example. And this is what it looks like when you just try to be a part of that. And it's devastating and deadly to just be a try, try to be a part of godly things without actually being a part of godly things. So that is, is what he does. He gives us a good example and a bad example. And in the bad example, we learn that godliness has nothing to do with horseshoes and hand grenades. Because being close is far short. And here's what this unity produced in their life in verse 32. So uh, verse 32 says, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So because we believe in the Lord Jesus, we must pursue generosity. And if you want to, uh, I'll change the, the notes up here, right? Being unified in Christ, we must produce generosity. You see that that is the step down in the passage, right? So they believed in the Lord Jesus. They were one heart and one soul. And what did that unity lead to? Generosity. So if you're keeping score at home or in your pew, belief, unity, generosity. That's how that works. Belief, unity, generosity. What you believe puts you a part of a group of people in which that you start to care about those other people in a way that otherwise you wouldn't if you didn't believe and you weren't unified with that group. So belief, unity, generosity, the step down of this passage. They believed, and he used words to describe their togetherness. They wanted the same things out of life. They wanted the same thing in the church and had genuine friendship with each other. That's what they did. What they didn't do was sit in the same room for an hour a week and then forget about those people the rest of the time, right? This isn't unity. This doesn't, just because we're not having a civil war right now in a wrestling match, in this room doesn't mean that we are, one, that we all believe, two, that we're all unified, and three, this isn't generosity. I didn't spit on them when they walked into my pew, so look how holy I am. It's kind of not a high standard. You know what I mean? So we look at their standard and how they achieved it, and what this result of the unity was is that they held their possessions loosely verse 34 says they sold them in order to provide for each other so they are unified verse 32 and 33 shows how they acted in their unity and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great grace was upon all of them so these are narrator comments from the narrator luke so they were preoccupied with two things in this passage, the needs of others and the gospel, the gospel and the needs of others. Both of those two things were what they did and what they were occupied with. This, my friends, is why they didn't 
have wrestling matches at their business meetings because they were worried about the gospel and the needs of those other people who were there in order to be generous to those people. And this just is fitting, right? They were people who were given the message of the gospel. That's that's right there in verse 33, the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let me remind us that the message of the Lord Jesus was for you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And if you're consumed with that testimony, then you're probably going to not worry about yourself so much. You're probably going to worry about your neighbor in the church is what you're probably going to do. It's a good reminder that they were focused on these two things and we don't have a laundry list of ways that we ought to be spending our lives. It's not a multiple choice. It's a singular focus on the testimony of the resurrection and care for the other people in the church. These are simple instructions that they clearly were living out. And the result of that is they had power and grace. Power and grace was upon all of them. This goes in stark contrast to uh, the slogan of UPS, no offense, but what can Brown do for you? You know, it's kind of like the, they, they got that from that John F. Kennedy speech, ask not what you're, country can do for you but what you can do for your country type thing unfortunately in our culture there is um church shopping you can you can do it online you can church shop online uh, maybe some are shopping on i i'm in an extra large right now for those online maybe two x if we have to do it just curious uh, but if you can church shop now without leaving your house you can figure out what will that group of people do for me how will my needs be catered to and met in that place in this they weren't necessarily preoccupied with their own needs but with the gospel and the needs of others so church shopping is is new and is completely different than what these people did so those of you asking what can the church do for me need to change the question around what can i do for my god through his church what can i do through for for god in his church if we just want to adjust that attitude to get in line with what we see here in acts 4 and acts 5 we would we would change that around like people who cater to others while carrying out the mission of christ it can't be one or another let's 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 stop right here for a second this can't be one or another we can't just be like braiding each other's hair and making friendship bracelets while the gospel stays in the bible that we carry right um, no offense to you guys who braided each other's hair this morning and made friendship bracelets. I don't want to offend you, okay? Uh, but this is what it looks like. The gospel going out through the church and us worrying about the other people in that church while we're getting the gospel out. It can't be one or another. It has to be both. We have to do both of these things. And they did both of those things. And here's the results of people who do both of those things, who worry about the testimony of the resurrection and the people for whom Christ resurrected, verse 34, and there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is the result of people who are preoccupied with the belief in the Lord Jesus 
in unity, genuine unity, by the way, the result is that there are a whole lot less, oh wait, excuse me, not any needy people in the congregation. Now, we learn later in Acts that this wasn't a complete liquidation of all of their possessions because they had houses to live in, still personal properties existed. Uh, when Peter and John get put into prison, they go to somebody's house and they're like, hey, we traded all this in for cardboard boxes for Christ, you know, and, you know, no, there were still personal properties that existed But what we see here is a principle for us that this is stewardship and not ownership. Stewardship and not ownership. Now, if you give to the church, you will not be generous in that giving if you don't believe that God owns everything. You won't. You won't give of your time, your talent, and your treasure to the church if you don't believe that God is actually the one who owns it all anyway, and you are a little bag of breath who gets to use it for just a minute. Right? But if you are the head owner, the head boss of your talent, your treasure, and your time, then you will be very stingy in how those things are spent. Why? Because you're in charge and you want to manage it. But if you're a steward who realizes that you're just a little bag of breath who uh, is renting (laughs) your body for a minute (laughs) and the minutes you have and the things you possess, then you'd kind of treat it differently, wouldn't you? You would. So here's what they do. According to verse 35, they saw they didn't have needs because the people who owned it sold it and brought the proceeds of the things sold and i don't my ruffle feathers verse 35 they didn't designate their offerings <laughs> what's up there you know verse 35 did, said they didn't designate that offering you know like they they take their offering and they lay it at the feet of the church leadership and they say meet the needs And they respected the church leadership and the church leadership goes, okay, need gone, need gone, the need's gone. That's how it worked. That's how it worked. They were so generous that that, my friends, is what they did. And I'm not saying if you designate your offering, you need to come to the altar. You know, like that's not it. But the principle of it was is that they were so generous that they said there's needs and these people are in charge of their needs, so I'm going to give it and they're going to meet the needs. Now, I'm sure that's not the only example and they met needs themselves, clearly. They used the vehicle of the church body to meet the needs within the church body. That's what they did. And that's what we ought to do as well. So they sacrificed things they owned for the sake of others and laid those funds at the apostles' feet and trusted them to do what was best for the church. That's what they did. You notice what isn't here in the, in the, the verse? They didn't tithe. They didn't tithe. Would you, do you know where the tithe is in the early church? Somebody want to guess where the tithing is? Nowhere. Sorry, nowhere. 
Because tithing is not what's happening here. And so you go, wait a minute, are you saying we shouldn't tithe to the church? No, that's good. That's good. That's, that's a really good principle. You know, I, I like the idea of it. But 10% of the, of, of some people's income isn't sacrificial at all. You know, like that's not sacrificial at all. Some people who are giving 10%, that's lazy. But 10% for some people is a big sacrifice. So I, you, you say I tithe. That could be good. It could be bad. I don't know. I don't know your situation and I don't know your heart. So I can't say if you tithe whether or not that's a good thing or not. I can't tell you. I need more information to be able to speak on these things. Tithing is a good principle to practice. But how we're challenged here in Acts chapter 4 is generous, sacrificial giving. So in the Old Testament, we see a principle of tithe. In the book of Malachi, for them not to do so is to, to steal and rob from God. But in the New Testament, we don't see tithing. We see sacrificial giving. So I think 10% is a great minimum baseline. But here we see people sacrificing, going without, not adding to. One of those two happened here, right? Either they went without something so you could have something, or they stopped the excess so you could have something that you needed. That's what, that's what this is. That, that, that's what this is. And I know this is, this is challenging for us because like, what if I sacrifice so you could meet a need and I sacrifice and you squander my sacrifice. What if that, what if that happened? You know, like this is a larger argument that goes to the government. What if I give my taxes and they pay for these people and they're going to spend it on booze and cigarettes? You know, like we take that and we have that attitude and when people argue about taxes and government politics and stuff like that, but in the church are like, what if we sacrifice and we give to the church leadership and then they try to meet a need and that person goes and doesn't do what they're supposed to do? Well, for us, there are bigger things at stake than how people do what they should or shouldn't do. As we see in verse, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that God will judge the hearts of people for what they do and don't do. So when we do that in the church and we try, and we try to minimize this as much as possible, somebody comes in and we like, there's, there's checks and balances and, and ways that we try not to waste the money, really meet needs and not waste money. That's the goal. It doesn't grow on trees. But we have to know that the reason that we're generous is not because of other people. We're generous because of God. We're generous because of God. We are. And we're generous because we're unified in belief in the Lord Jesus. Belief, unity, generosity. Here we are pursuing generosity, pursuing the needs of others. Why? Because we believe that we didn't deserve anything from God and that God gave us the best that anyone has ever been given. How with him will he not also graciously give us all things? Romans 8. He gave us his son. Our belief, our banking at all is on him. We are together in the church body because of that. And because we realize we didn't deserve anything, but God gave us what we didn't deserve. Now we care more about other people than ourselves. So, what we do is we strive to be unified in sacrificial giving and submission to godly leadership. 
That's a principle that we see from the pattern of this verse. Are we marked by pursuing unity, by carrying out the mission of the church and being concerned with the, the needs of the other people in the church? Does it matter that they need something that they don't have? And we're talking about real needs. We're not talking about they had to cancel their Netflix subscription. So you need to put more in the plate. We mean like real needs that people need. Like they might have to cancel their electricity subscription. That is what we're talking about here. What they did, they sacrificed so the needs of others could be met. That's what they did. We would do this because of Christ. He's our example. He was consumed with the work of his father. And Mark 10, 45 tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And because of that, pursuing generosity means that this place ought to be full of servants. Full of servants who sacrificially give to the needs of others. Is this, is this what we're chasing? Is this what we're chasing? Or are we asking, what can Farmdale do for us? Instead of, what can we do for Farmdale? You see, we must pursue generosity asking what we can do for Farmdale. And in the midst of this, we're pursuing generosity and then we are avoiding, at all costs, hypocrisy. They're generous, but not hypocrisy. That's not a word. Just did that one for you guys. Just did it for you. Hip, hip, hypocrisy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hypocrisy. You see, because what happens here is that there is a good example and a bad example. At the end of chapter 40, or at the end of chapter 4, Verses 36 and 37, there's a guy that we will learn more about later. His name is Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. Here's how he encouraged. He was unified. He believed in the Lord Jesus. He was unified with the church. He wasn't caught up in the group, but he himself was generous with his property because what did he do? He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what marked all of these people? Well, they believed in the Lord and they were unified together genuinely. And because of that, they were generous. Let me show you an example of that. Barnabas sold a field. He clearly wasn't living in that field. But he sold the field. And he laid it to the church leadership and he says, take the money from this field, meet the needs of the people that are needy. He did that. And then we see somebody who was a bad example of this. Barnabas was a good example, sacrificially gave to a unified church. Then we meet another individual named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. 
So Ananias, he sold a piece of property and notice what he does in verse two of chapter five as we cross the chapter boundary. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Not bad, right? He put something in the plate. Here's the problem. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You see, in context, we understand that he and his wife sold the field and lied about the money amount in order to look spiritual and sacrificial. You say, well, how do you, how do you know that? Well, because Peter responds by saying, did anybody make you sell this? No. And when you did sell it, could you have done anything you wanted to do with that money? Yeah. But instead, he likely sold this field, took the money, act like that this was all it brought, and gave it to the church leadership and said, sacrificially generous, check the box. Here's the check. And what does Peter say about it? He said, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? It wasn't that he didn't give enough. It was that he pretended to do so. He pretended. He and his wife pretended to be spiritual and sacrificial. A picture of this as if you needed another one, uh, is from the st- uh, a story I read about a guy named Russell Herman. Probably never heard about him, but he passed away, God rest his soul, at the age of 67. And he left behind a generous will. Included in his plan was distribution for more than $2 billion for the city of East St. Louis. Another billion and a half for the state of Illinois. Two and a half billion for the national forest system and to top off the list, Herman left six trillion dollars to the government to help pay off the national debt. The problem? Herman's only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. That's all he had to his name. That's the problem. He wrote huge checks with his mouth and the only real generosity didn't exist because he didn't back up any of those checks. He didn't really have anything. He only wanted to sound generous without being generous. That's the same thing we see with Ananias and Sapphira. They acted as if they were part of the unity. They acted as if they were part of the generosity. They acted as if they were part of the belief. That's what hypocrisy is. Despite popular belief, it's not that you sin and claim to be a Christian. That's not what hypocrisy is. What makes someone as a hypocrite is the one who pretends they don't sin. Who pretends they don't sin. That's what it is. Even when the watching world knows that you do. The world knows. Ananias and Sapphira only pretended to be sacrificial 
and unified with the church. And Peter's judgment on them, if you look at the verse, was that Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. That's what he says, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So here's why our belief in the Lord Jesus, unity with his church and pursuit of generosity matters. What if they spend it on booze? I mean, like what? Why does it matter? Because in our giving to the church of our time, talent, and treasures, we are giving not to man, but to God. We are giving to God. Do you see the end of the chat, the verse there? You have not lied to man, but to God. So don't, God knows whether or not you're generous. He knows whether or not you're generous or, or whether or not you're stingy. And he knows whether or not you're acting generous all the while you're stingy. He knows that. And when you give, you give to sinful church leadership. But it's probably not the quality of leadership that we're looking at here. None of ours have, I haven't talked to Pastor Jonathan, but neither of us have raised anybody from the dead so far. We haven't healed any blind. I got to check with him on that. I'm new here. I'm just like, so have you healed any blind guys so far? Or any beggar, you raised any beggars off their bed? Because I haven't. So why would you give to people who aren't apostles? As elders and overseers, why would you do that? Because you're not giving to men. You're giving to God. And God is going to judge all of those people that you give that to. He's going to judge the leadership for how it, how overseers for how they oversee, counsel for how they counsel, business meetings for decisions we make. He's judging, he's going to judge all of that. But we are still generous in our giving to the church and to the people of the church because, not because they deserve it, because that is us and God. What's going on in those moments is between us and God. And when we fake it, we don't make it because it belongs to God and He knows. Just a side note that the giving in the, in the New Testament was sacrificial, but it was also voluntary. It was voluntary. You could have done anything you wanted to do with this, Ananias and Sapphira. We don't have AK-47s and the door's locked at the back and we're not mugging people at the door. You could have done whatever you wanted to do. Why didn't you? Why did you decide to put on a religious show? To act like you were just people caught up with what a group was doing. That's no good. That's no good. You didn't lie to God, but or to man, but to God. And you know, there in the verses it says, when Ananias heard these words from Peter, he fell down dead. He fell down dead. Another piece of proof that there's a lot at stake in the unity of the church and the generosity of the church. You can't be close. You can't be fake. Why? why? Why would he die? Because it was something that he did to God. 
He lied to God with his stinginess. And he died. God killed him right here on the spot. His wife came in. They had the same conversation. Just, how much did you sell that for? So much? Oh yeah, so much. All right, I'm just trying to fill out the paperwork for your taxes. Bring the guys in. Bring the pallbearers. This person's taxes are not going to have to be paid by them. There's two things that are sure, death and taxes. Well, they got out of taxes because here's, here's the second surety of all our lives. And this was brought about swiftly because they lied and tested the Spirit of God. Tom Constable says we lie to the Holy Spirit in modern ways. He says when Christians act hypocritically by pretending a devotion that is not theirs or a surrender of life that they have not really made, they lie to the Holy Spirit. If God worked today as he did in the early Jerusalem church, undertakers would have much work. We need to take a honest look at ourselves, see if there's any spiritual deception going on, any spiritual deception where you're trying to look more spiritual than you are trying to look like you're doing things that you're not really doing that you're devoted at a level that you're not really devoted there are big things at stake right you are not devoted to men but you are devoted to god and as a result of that there could be immediate divine swift judgment upon you it is possible that this could happen to us, to any of us. Because of this misconception, there's this God of wrath in the Old Testament and he was angry and you stay, you, you don't get on his bad side. You don't, you don't talk to this God of wrath because he might smush you like a bug. But then, he just uh, got in a better mood, you know, in, in the New Testament and, and then there's this, this, uh, this sweet, fuzzy grandfather, he, he's mellowed with age. And this one is just, he winks at you and gives you $20 and Werther's Originals pats you on the back and says, uh, if you need some more money, just come on back. I don't care what your parents say. And that's the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament's a dad. You know, he's like, you act right. And the God of the New, the New Testament is a grandfather. And he's like, come on over here. I'm going to give you chocolate and Red Bulls and have your parents put you to bed without me. But then we, what would we do with that misconception looking here at Acts 4 and Acts 5? Because I don't know if you know where we are in the terrain of the Scriptures. We are in the New Testament. Isn't this, wasn't that law and this grace? Isn't that what that was? And isn't that what this is? No. We're in the New Testament now. And this is the same God that was in the Old Testament is in the New Testament. Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized sacrifice, strange fire, have you, before the Lord, and he put them to death. And then Ananias and Sapphira came and acted like they were sacrificially generous and united to a New Testament church. And God put them to death. We 
should be really careful because these deaths show us that God takes sin seriously and he takes pretend righteousness seriously as well. He does. If God were to immediately judge us, would this be our plight? Would this be? Would this be? If God were to look at how we reacted to his church, would we need some young men, a tarp, and a shovel? If he looked at us about what, where our hearts really are, to where they, we pretend that they are, would we need young men, a tarp, and a shovel? I don't know. How many of us have made promises to God that we're not carrying out? If you're that type who makes promises. The thing about the Old Testament and the New Testament and whatever today is, is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed. This is the same character of God that we run into. Some of us, by the way, we are living, are testing a holy God's reaction to sin. We're testing a, the Spirit of God's reaction to our hypocrisy, to genuineness. Ananias and Sapphira is an example. Proof positive is that the church is no place to hide. There's no place to hide in here. There's nowhere to hide from the eyes of him of whom we must all give an account. Maybe he'll be pleased with me because I'm in this group of people that he's pleased with. Maybe I can hide in here from the eyes who burn like fire. Maybe I can. No, this is no place, no place to do that. But I will say, we as Christians need to look at this account of God killing someone who's playing a part in the congregation as a wake-up call for all of us. It sobers us up. What if his divine prerogative decided to exact the same type of justice on the hypocrites among us? What would he do? Is our devotion to the church Devotion, one better, to God. And our devotion playing out to God in His church, really genuine. Is it fake or is it real? We might be sad one day if we figure out that answer too late. I saw this right before my eyes. I was at a pawn shop trying to buy some bait and I was behind this girl and she was bragging to the guy behind the counter about her family heirloom that she brought in to sell. I was trying not to pry, trying to mind my own business, but I couldn't help it. I was right behind her. She talked about how old it was and how great it was and who gave it to her and she told the story and I ignored most of that. Uh, I don't really know what happened for most of that. 
But I never forget the look on her face after she turned around hearing the guy tell her that this isn't real. This isn't gold. It's just gold colored. I'm sorry. It's just gold colored. It's not actually gold. So she turned around broken hearted to realize that the thing that she cherished was fake and worth nothing. She went away sad and empty handed. And we know from the scriptures that there is more at stake whether or not we're genuine than money. There's more at stake in that. John described it like this in his revelation. He said, Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. John tells us later that if anyone's name was not found in the, in the book of life, that they were thrown into a lake of fire. This is the lake that burns with sulfur. This is the second death. You see, all of our genuineness will one day be tested before the eyes of a holy God. In his book, your name is either there or it is not there. He's not going to squint his holy eyes and pull it close and say, I kind of see it. It's kind of there. It will either be there or it won't be. And you will either be in a lake of fire or an eternal pleasure with the God of whom you loved and lived your life for. And I don't know which for you. Most of you, I don't know, have enough information to know which. And if your genuineness is true, I don't know. God will test the genuineness, not only of our generosity in the church, but our salvation. Close will not count on that day. Connected to religious things or hiding in a religious body will not work for us on that day. On that day you will be naked before him of whom you must give an account. He will read your thoughts and intentions of your heart like a billboard. Of everything you've ever done, it will be laid before him. Newsflash, it is laid before him right now and his eyes are upon you. His eyes are upon you. His eyes are upon me. Judging teachers all the more harshly. So we put on his spectacles on this one. Lord, have mercy on me. And you. As we know, we are trusting in not our works, but in Christ. We don't just want to be a person caught up in the activities of a group, hiding in a group of people until God smites us on that day when we meet Him. Half generous, half-hearted, lukewarm, before Him to be spit out of His mouth for eternity. 
because we're unified in Christ, we must pursue generosity, right? We, we believe in him. We're banking our entire life on him. We're worried about them. We're not swimming in excess, but we are worried about the need, real needs of people around us in the church. We're not faking it till we make it. Because one day God's going to break it and take it. If you fake it till you make it, that's not going to work. And we avoid hypocrisy, acting and playing games. Because when you stand before a holy God, what will the verdict be? What will the verdict be? God commanded you to be holy, but you weren't. He commanded you to keep His commands, to live a certain way, and you didn't. And instead of bringing the men and the tarps and the shovels, what did He do? God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus. And God showed His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. And here we are, lukewarm with half devotion, waiting on frishes to come. Meanwhile, the holy God who created everything, the Almighty, His eyes are upon you. And He wants your heart. He wants and is worthy of wholehearted devotion. Are you playing hiding in a group of people? Because you can't. And it won't work. The girl that turned around, dejected, had her fake necklace. It's nothing compared to what's going to happen to you on that day when you meet God. If you're a Christian, you know that, that you don't deserve to be here. You don't, you, you deserve the, the young man, the shovel, the tarp a long time ago. Oh, what grace God has given you that he didn't get the young man and the shovel for you already. What kind of generosity? Should that bring about that wholehearted devotion to God, His people, His church, and His causes in the world? What kind of life change and transformation would that bring about? We quit playing. So if you're not a Christian today, you need to turn from your sin and trust solely in the work of the Lord Jesus. Because on that day, when, the, when you see God and when you stand before the God who created you, your works are not going to be good enough. But only the work of Jesus in your place Alive, living the life you should have lived, dead for your sin on the cross, rising on the third day and raising victorious. Only His works will count, not yours. If you're a Christian, I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm not getting the stick and holding the carrot out and say, go. I'm not doing that. But I'm saying because Jesus took the stick for you, you should be generous to them. Genuinely generous. So let's do the thing instead of pretending to do so. Wasting our time and wasting our lives. Let's end that. Pursue generosity and avoid hypocrisy because we are unified in believing in this one who rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son. We would all be Ananias and Sapphira if it weren't for your great grace upon us. We just need you. We ask for mercy to turn from our hypocrisy and half-hearted devotions. We ask that you would pour our lives out for you. Give us eyes for the needy among us and generosity that you know we need. Make us care about their needs because of what you have fulfilled in us. In Jesus' name, amen.